last, uh, our last sermon from this series of Sex and Gender in the Image of God. Uh, next week, if you come back, we'll be returning to our Through the Bible service, which is just moving right through the Bible about three chapters a week, and we'll pick up in the book of Numbers. Um, as we are finishing our series tonight, as we have done for the last six weeks, there will be a Q&A to follow. If you have any questions um, over the course of the service, you can text a number uh, which will be up on the screen um, and we'll answer some of your questions. Uh, tonight is going to be somewhat different from the last six weeks and I think that that's actually essential. It's worth recognizing um, where we've been and if you joined us you know that effectively we've focused on the first two chapters of Genesis and what they teach us about gender and sexuality and although we've traveled across the scriptures um, most of the passages have been explanations or built on the foundation of Genesis 1 and 2 and the reason why um, why the series at this point is incomplete and needs something more uh, is, is for, uh, for, I guess I'll, I'll state it in a couple of reasons. First, we need to recognize what these six weeks are not. As we've looked, we've seen consistently that the aspects of our sexuality as designed by God are built right into this idea of the image of God, that they are by design um, purposed to show who God is, to reflect who he is, uh, to live out in symbolic ways his character and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. We've seen this both in the three uh, traditional aspects of sexuality, sexuality as embodied sexuality, as relational sexuality, um, as social. And we've seen it in gender primarily through the major archetypes of man, woman, mother, father and husband and wife. Um, and all of these we've seen consistently are lenses God uses to show us himself. But when we look at our own lives and applying these things, it's, it's helpful to realize what that is not, what, what looking at creation is not. And the first thing I want to say is that it's not a map. Okay. Genesis 1 and 2, you may remember that we talked about four major lenses to look at our sexuality or frankly anything else in life through according to the Bible of creation, the fact that the world was created and it was good and it was designed with purpose, fall, that the world we live in, something has gone terribly wrong because of sin and that impacts not just us as sinners but the world we live in as broken and our bodies and the physical reality of our world as broken as well. Um, redemption, meaning that God actually did something about this by sending Jesus Christ to restore these things and then some, and then consummation, that what has begun in Jesus with his coming, with his death, burial, resurrection, with even the sending of the Spirit, uh, will one day be complete. And so we live in this period of now but not yet, where Jesus has come but he has not yet returned, where salvation is available but it's not yet finished, it's not yet complete, uh, where we are living in a fallen world, but we have this gift of the Holy Spirit where we are looking forward to paradise, but there's still some things that God is working on in our own lives. That's where we actually live. And so it's worth remembering that what we've done by focusing on creation is not a map. It doesn't tell you how to get 
where you're supposed to be going, okay? Um, not only that, it's also not the destination, okay? If we're going to stick with a travel metaphor, what we've been looking at isn't the destination. And the honest truth, and we've hinted at this along the way, uh, but the honest truth is if you can tick every box of the reality as it's manifest, uh, in other words, if you find yourself to be um, cisgender, heterosexual, married, and fertile, you still can very easily miss the point. That's not the destination. It's not uh, where things are taking. That's what makes consummation so important because we found consistently that all these things point to a truer manifestation in what God is doing with us, a deeper manifestation in things that are to come, that these realities are merely shadows and the destination is not just like uh, in the words of Joni Mitchell or Crosby, Stills, and Nash, getting back to the garden, but something beyond that. Something different than that. So why then is it important to talk about the world as it was? And the reason is because it operates as a compass. It shows us true north. It helps us to determine the direction and the trajectory. But a compass isn't enough for the travel. Okay? It's essential. And so what I want to do tonight is fill in the blank. We have the compass in creation. We have uh, the destination in what God is doing in the consummation of all things and where everything is headed. Um, but we all, all find ourselves in a different place, strung between those two realities. We may know where true north is. We may understand the destination. But what does that mean for us where we live, where we are now? Okay. And when we look at, uh, at the fall and redemption, if we can build on this metaphor, the fall means that you have a starting place, okay? And it's off the map of Genesis 1 and 2, okay? It's, it's not in the place where the compass is so central that it would just spin in circles because you're actually at the place it's attracted to. Um, all of us are in... Uh, a fallen place. We don't experience this as we should, and we all experience it differently, which means sometimes it's not even helpful to compare notes because our starting places are so different. And then it's worth mentioning that when we talk about redemption, effectively what we're talking about is the mode of travel. That what God is doing in Jesus Christ tells us how we get from A to B, and it's a little bit of a surprise. Because even that is not a map. In fact, it's not even a list of directions. Sometimes we can approach the scriptures and that's what we're looking for. Give me the rules and the principles and the guidelines and turn at the next oak tree so that I can get to heaven, so that I can get where I'm going. But the Bible says that God's done something significantly different than that. He's given us a savior. If I could use travel language, he's given us a guide. And a guide and a map is different. A guide and a map is different, and so is a guide and directions. Because what the Bible talks about is not an impersonal print-off set of MapQuest instructions, but a person, a person who knows the territory, who's totally there for you, uh, who can take you the whole uh, length of the journey. And so what I want to do tonight, actually, is get you a little bit more familiar, both with the starting places, from a biblical standpoint, of, of what this fallen context looks like for all of us, even though it will be uniquely looking like this in different ways, uh, and then also introduce you to the guide, introduce you to Jesus, 
And so it's a little bit ambitious, but I'd actually like to look at four different personal interactions between people and Jesus to see how this plays out, to see how this works out. Once again, it's not necessarily a map. And it's worth pointing out that uh, even recognizing the truths that we look at tonight is really just setting you up for the beginning. It's not going to, you know, um, accomplish all the travel all at once. But it will help you to orient with this idea of, okay, here's the compass, true north. Here's what's really going on in my life. What is it that Jesus wants from me? What is, the, is it that Jesus meets me in? Where are we going? Maybe even what's the next step? And so, for the most part, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and we'll start in John chapter 9 tonight. The reason why I want to look at these four different people is because they're four different people that experience the reality of life, the starting place that we're talking about um, in our journey of life, uh, in different ways. And I don't want you to see these different ways as being mutually exclusive. So you're only in one of these and it doesn't touch the other. Life is a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more interwoven. But these characters we're going to look at, these people that Jesus spoke with, um, that were impacted by Jesus, each one of them has a different manifestation of things that we need to keep in mind. And the first one is in John chapter 9. And John chapter 9 um, deals with a man who was born blind who Jesus heals. And I want you to recognize, before we read it, the significance of this for what we're talking about. Okay? This is a man who was born blind, which we could call a birth defect. Okay? There is something inherently wrong with him physically that completely impacts his life on almost every level, in the big picture, in the day-to-day, from the beginning, the whole course of it, uh, we'll find that he's begging in this because in, in that day and age, that's really the only way to survive as a blind person, okay? So it's, it's more than just a difference in life. It's a clear narrowing of options. Um, and this is a major facet of all of our lives in all sorts of categories, As I mentioned, the world as we know it is not as it should be, and that includes ourselves. It includes our bodies. And so this would speak speak to those of us who um, deal with things like infertility. It would speak to those of us who find um, uh, like gender dysphoria, an incongruence, a severe distress that my personal internal gender identity does not seem to align with my biological sex, okay? Things uh, that aren't as they should be, things that don't line up to the design, defects. And so let's look at the story. Let's read together just the first seven verses of chapter 9. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. 
Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would find ourselves in these stories. I know that the characters that populate the Gospels are not merely records of what happened, although that's clearly what they are. They're carefully selected examples. They're intentionally chosen to teach us who you are and so that we might find ourselves in the pages of Scripture and therefore find ourselves in relation to you. So I ask that you would open our eyes and help us to see where we are in this context, who you are in this context, what you're speaking to us tonight in this context. I ask that you would do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like many stories in the Gospels, the disciples don't come out looking very good. Notice how this story starts. Here's a man who's clearly suffering, blind, since birth, begging at the side of the road. Side note, the disciples know the backstory. I doubt he has a little sign set out in Hebrew or Aramaic that says, I was born blind. Okay? They know who this guy is, but here he's just a theoretical. He's just a hypothetical. He's just a theological conundrum. Why was this man born blind? As they talk about this man right in front of him, not with any sense of compassion, but just merely curiosity. And the only thing that they can come up with is that somebody screwed up. Okay? And so the question is, is it this guy's fault that he was born blind? Is there something that he did, maybe prenatally even, that led to this outcome? Or is it his parents' fault and he's just the consequence of the wickedness of his parents? Those are the only categories they have, and Jesus doesn't fall for the false dichotomy. He effectively says neither. He says it's not that this man was born blind, nor, or not that this man sinned, nor that his parents sinned that he was born blind, and he presents an alternative interpretation. And I think this is helpful for us to look at tonight, because there is a tendency to do the same thing with these issues, to take uh, to take aspects of the world as we find it, as fallen as it is, things that are incongruent and clearly should not be, and try and place blame. And for many of us, this is not just something other people do to us, it's something we do to ourselves. And so infertile women wonder to themselves, what did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? Right? Or if you're wrestling with your sense of of gender, you look at your life and you say, Am I a mistake? What's wrong here? Whose fault is this? But Jesus handles things in a, in a different way. And it's not here, I want to be clear, it's not here that he doesn't see the fallenness. Like we could just say, this man was born blind because the world is broken. And that's actually a pretty decent aspect. The world is not as it should be. There is such things as death and corruption and defect because of sin because of the fall of the world. Jesus doesn't deny that, but he says something more than that. He pushes beyond that. He says something more significant. Notice what he says here, verse 3. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says the significance of this man's blindness is found in purpose, in intentionality. He says, it's neither a consequence, nor is it an accident. It is 
intentional. It has a purpose. This was man, man was born blind so that the works of God may be shown in him. Okay. See, what Jesus is saying here is that this man's blindness serves a greater purpose. Despite the fact that it's suffering, despite the fact that it's a defect, despite the fact that it causes uh, a severely difficult life for this person, he still sees it as having an intention, having a purpose, and a good one at that. And not just for Jesus' sake. If you're a cynic, you can read this, and it makes it sound like Jesus sees this primarily as an advantage for his own fame. And so he says, this man was born blind just so that I could heal him and everybody would applaud. Now, that doesn't really fit the person of Jesus on the pages of scriptures, who generally heals people and says, don't tell anybody, okay? But more importantly, it misses the significance of why it's valuable that the works of God might be displayed at all. The works of God displayed display. They show that he is and who he is. They demonstrate his care and his compassion. They reveal who God is. That's especially important in the Gospel of John. John handpicks seven miracles and only seven to talk about in his Gospel. And he says at the end of the book, there were many other things that Jesus did and I probably could have written a library full of books to tell you them all, but these have been selected so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him have life in his name. He wants to show us who Jesus is. Jesus wants to show us who Jesus is and so he recognizes that the starting place of this man is filled with promise that the works of God might be displayed. The recognition here comes down to two very simple ideas. One is that whatever your starting place is, wherever you experience the fall, wherever you look at life and you say, this isn't as it should be, that's not by accident. Okay? The sovereignty of God is on display here. Now, sometimes we think it would be easier for me it would be easier, I think, if we knew that God had nothing to do with those born blind. It would be easier to think that the hardships that we face in life, the fallen world and the, the tumultuous realities of life are somehow not God's fault. And that's the exact concern we have, right? Because if God is sovereign, then how do we maintain his goodness? How can he be a good God and, and give this man blindness from birth? and all of the accessory difficulty that comes with it. But the thing is, the thing is that doesn't really bring the hope that it promises. Because then there's no assurance. Because then there's no significance in our suffering. It really is meaningless. It's out of God's control and it's just stuff that happens. And not only that, but it doesn't align with the greatest realities of who God is. Not only does Jesus point to this particular aspect of suffering here and say it was for a purpose so that God's works might be displayed, but consistently we see that happening in the Bible. Think of the life of Joseph. What you have meant for evil, God has meant for good. Augustine saw Genesis chapter 3 in just this light. He had a Latin phrase for it, Felix culpa, the lucky sin. 
the fortunate sin. And the reason he labeled that is because he recognized as terrible as the sin and, uh, in the garden and its consequences are, God used it to do something greater. That what we have in Jesus Christ is not equal to what Adam and Eve had, it's greater. And so Adam and Eve were created by God, but we, through Jesus Christ, are adopted into his family. Adam and Eve had present, day-to-day, walking fellowship with God, but we have an eternal destiny of that fellowship. He looked at even when everything goes wrong, and he said, in a sense, though, we have to recognize that this didn't catch God off, off, uh, off guard. That even this he was able to use to accomplish his great purpose. Now, if you struggle with that, recognize that the heart of Christianity is the most profound illustration of this. The cross of Christ. The place where the worst thing that's ever happened in history, the most undeserved thing that's ever happened in history, the greatest act of injustice ever committed, when God, who had taken on flesh, on a mission of love, who lived a life like this, healing the blind, raising the dead, feeding the poor, having compassion on the crowds, teaching them the true ways of God, is crucified by the creation he created, by the nation that he had covenanted with. It looks like a place where evil has finally and fully triumphed, God's last-ditch effort to save humanity is in shambles because humanity has just put that, that missionary to death. But it's that, it's that death itself that God uses to accomplish the greatest act in human history. Salvation itself, all the blessings available in Christ come through that horrific and horrible instrument of crucifixion. And so we have to recognize here that the things where we struggle, the places that we begin from, are not accidents. For many of us, we, we look at the pages of scriptures and we just go, we're, we're not even on the radar. We're off the map. All of these things are good news for you, but how can it be good for me? Because I've got this issue, because I'm dealing with this. How does God see these things? What's he going to do about this? And with this man... Not only does he speak this, but he does something about it. He heals him. And he goes from a man who's been born blind from birth to a man who can see. But we need to recognize tonight that that is one outcome. And I think we would recognize very easily that that's an outcome that makes manifest the works of God. In fact, when, later on when the blind man is arguing with the religious leaders who are pretty sure he's made this whole thing up because this just doesn't happen. And they finally go, whatever, we know that the man who healed you is a sinner. And that's kind of the last straw. The guy goes, really? Some crazy, wicked person just made it so I can see? That's, that's the story that you're sticking to? That's what you get out of this? And he, he recognizes the significance of what's just happened. And if you read the passage later, you can see that his understanding of who Jesus is develops as he processes it. And so at first, he's just some man, I don't know who. Because remember, the, Jesus sends him away. So while he's still blind, he goes away. By the time he can see and comes back, Jesus is gone. So in a sense, he doesn't know. But pretty soon, he's referring to him as a prophet. 
And then he teases the Pharisees and he says, do you too want to become his disciple? Right? He's having this revelation of understanding of who Jesus is, despite the fact that the Pharisees can't see it. And I want to be clear here that what I'm promising is not, not present tense, right in the middle of the midst of your suffering, healing. That's one way this can go. And it's a beautiful way. And it's one that we shouldn't try and deny because God is a worker of miracles. In the Old Testament, he's known as Jehovah Jireh, God our healer. He does these things. James tells us we should ask for these things because sometimes we don't get answers to our prayer because we don't ask in prayer. But that's not the only way that this goes that glorifies God and makes him manifest. Paul the Apostle knew a little bit about suffering. On Sunday mornings before this series, and we'll return to it next Sunday, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, which is the most raw of his presentations of the suffering that he went through. While he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians, he's at the lowest point in his life. And if you read later in the book when he catalogs the things he's gone through, there's been a lot of dips. There's been a lot of difficulties. He's been beaten by religious leaders. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's often been hungry and left out in the weather and in danger of robbers and being chased out of one town and into another. He's experienced all these things, but as he writes this, he uses the strongest language we find to talk about his condition. And later in the letter in, um, near the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks about a particular thing that's going on in his life a particular aspect of suffering, one that is clearly physical but not merely physical. And this is what he says. This is in chapter 12. He says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of my revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Okay. Now, clearly he's being metaphorical there. We don't actually know what he was suffering from, and it's one of the most striking things about Paul is until he feels the need to boast in his sufferings like he does in chapter 11, he's pretty nondescript. He tells us psychologically how he feels. He doesn't tell us explicitly what he's going through. But here he just calls it a thorn in the flesh. Okay? And then notice what he calls it next. He says, he says, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And the word there for har harass is literally translated to beat over the head. In the old King James, it's to buffet me. It's like he's going round after round with the devil himself. That's how he sees this. Whatever it is, it's a consistent physical ailment. I want you to remember who we're talking about here. This is the Apostle Paul who has devoted his life to making the name of Jesus known where it is not known. And now he's suddenly got this baggage of pain and suffering and difficulty to carry along that journey. It seems like a hindrance. It seems like something in the way. In fact, even here he recognizes that it's spiritual warfare, that there's something about it that's inherently satanic. And so he does what many of us would do. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times, consistently, regularly, I prayed and said, God, deliver me from this. Get rid of this. Heal me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so God speaks to him, and instead of healing him, he says, I'm doing something more important here. He says, I'm going to give you enough to be sufficient. 
And then he says, and there's an advantage in the weakness you're experiencing because this is where my power is made manifest. And notice how Paul responds. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He looks at this thing that was so difficult that he made it a regular and routine aspect of prayer and he says, worth it. Worth it. He takes this ailment or this illness or whatever it is and he says, if it leads to Christ being more powerful in my life, I'll take it. You see, one of the ways that God makes himself manifest in our suffering and in our fallenness is by changing it. And I'll be honest, Paul no longer has that thorn in the flesh. For all of us, healing and total healing, complete healing, a complete restoration of the image of God, the removal of all of these things that we limp with, that we struggle with, that we cry about, that make life difficult, all of it will be removed. But even if it's not removed in this life, there's still a goodness in it, still a place for God's goodness to be manifest because his grace is sufficient. Because we can live as we are in this brokenness to his glory. I want to share with you the words of a Christian man who struggles with gender dysphoria. Once again, gender dysphoria is when your physical, biological sex and your internal sense of self, your gender identity, are so incongruent that you're actually under distress. And this is what he says about his own suffering. Suffering in Christianity is not only not meaningless, it is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior because this is the means by which the ugly, meaninglessness, uh, meaningless atheistic suffering of the world, the problem of evil, was transmuted into living water. The blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation, the great paradox here is that the tree of death and suffering, the cross, is the tree of life. The central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it's through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane. Christ prays, not my will, but thine be done. And when God's will is done, it involves the scourge and the nails. It's also always struck me as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to the state of perfection as the body of Adam and Eden, but rather still bears the marks of his suffering and death. And indeed, that uh, it is precisely through these marks that he is known by Thomas. And so the significance we have to recognize here is, is true whether there is present tense healing or only the hope of healing, whether the condition is one where there's relief and comfort or one where there is just endurance and survival. And so your, your story may be very different than this man in the Gospel of John. But there's some other things I want us to see as well here. 
Um, at first, the people around him respond, and they can't figure out how this has happened. But eventually, he's taken in front of these religious leaders, and they interrogate him. And their primary place of concern is that whoever healed this man did it on the Sabbath, which is basically an act of work and against the law. And so they want to know who did it so that they can reprimand them. Okay? Here's a man who suddenly has his sight, and all they can care about is, is, is keeping the rules, right? And so eventually, because this man stands his ground about who this guy must be just because of the fact that he stands before him. This is, by the way, the passage where we get, I once was blind, but now I see. That's his testimony, literally. Those are his words. Okay? And so they throw him out. They go, whatever, we're done with you. Just don't do any work on the Sabbath. And they let him go. And the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there what it tells us is that Jesus, verse 35 of John 9, heard that they had cast him out and having found him said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him. Notice the significance of that phrasing, right? To a blind man to whom sight is only a few days old, right? You've seen him. It's profound. He said, uh, he said to him, you've seen him. It is I who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I want you to see the destination there. The goal where Jesus was taking this man was not just to sight. It was to seeing Jesus. It was not just to experiencing relief from the imprint of the fall on his life. It was to knowing his Savior. And so it's not just for the sake of others who see this man who was blind and now this has this incredible testimony of who Jesus is, but also for the man himself. That is the greatest good of the things that God allows into our life. God uses them to help us see Jesus more clearly. If you don't believe me, read Philippians 3, where Paul says that I will gladly be conformed into the image of Christ's suffering that I may know Christ more deeply. Many of us experience in many different categories, in many different ways, the fallenness of life. But as a Christian, we know that that doesn't relegate us to the status of outsider. It doesn't leave us outside the door with no plan of salvation um, you know, as if, as if everybody else gets to line up on the tees and we're not even pulled into the golf course. It's not like that. These are things that God has intentionally allowed and designed for the sake of his glory to our benefit and good. And I think sometimes, personally, for all of us, that's a hard pill to swallow. We would like to prefer an opposite place. In fact, for some of us, we would, rather, we would rather take these things and say, no, they're not accidental, but they're purposeful, they're beautiful, and they're good. And we try and scrub away that true north of, of creation. But there's, there's something else we have to look at in the story here. Jesus doesn't stop there after he heals him. He says something. He says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Earlier in this passage, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. Do you see how much is going on here that's more than just physical sight? And so what he says here is that I'm not just the one who takes those who are physically blind and gives them light. I'm also generally the one who takes spiritual blindness away and shows, and he says, but the only ones I can't do that for are the ones who say I see. And that's significant because most physically blind people know it. But it's one of the aspects of spiritual blindness that we don't think that we're blind. And so here are the Pharisees who have seen the same act of God in their presence and can't see it. And Jesus would love for them to see it. But they say, no, we have all the facts. We see everything. And so we've got to be careful about our diagnosis. If Jesus is alive, if he is who he said he is, if he really did come as God in the flesh and speak the words as they were recorded in scripture, then everything we know is wrong. But even if we have to take the diagnosis that Jesus presents, that there really is something wrong and that it's terribly wrong and that it's even not as it should be, that diagnosis is from the great physician the great healer, the good doctor who not only tells us what's wrong but has a direct plan of action, something to do about it, is up to something good. But that's not the whole of what we experience. Another way that this manifests is not so directly in our bodies and in our environments but internally in our desires, in our longings, in the things that, uh, that either are, are disordered or go unmet in our life of the way that we think life should, should be and it just never turns out that way. And so we have these longings, unmet, unsatisfied, frustrated. And we struggle with that. And so I want to look at another person that Jesus talks to, this one in John chapter 4. As we saw in John chapter 9 with the idea of blindness, John chapter 4 and this interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well of Samaria is really about one significant thing. It's deeper than it looks at first. It starts like a, just a normal conversation where he's asking for a drink of water. But as it runs through, it gets deeper and deeper, but it's all along the same track. It follows the same thing. Whereas the last passage was about, about sight and seeing for, for real, this passage is about desires and satisfaction. Listen as we read in chapter uh, 4, verse 7. So Jesus is resting in a well in the city of Samaria here. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaria. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is the first clear observation where we can see that Jesus is up to something. There's something deeper going on. That even if Jesus was truly thirsty and asking for a drink, he's got a different agenda in mind. In fact, if you read the story carefully, as Jesus is traveling here, he takes an extremely 
long-distant detour to go through Samaria, which is something that the average Jew just didn't do. As you see in here, Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They were like Jewish half-breeds who had intermarried with other people and whose religion was only partially Jewish. And so they'd been ostracized. And Jesus must go through Samaria. Why? To talk to this woman. It's not about a drink of water. And so he says to her this very odd thing. He says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would recognize that he was capable of giving living water and you'd ask him for a drink. And the conversation continues. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, now notice the way that this deepens once again. She basically says, how can you give me a drink at all when I'm the one with the bucket, right? And he says, no, we're talking about something more significant. The water that I'm talking about will quench your thirst permanently. In fact, it will plant within you a fountain of living water and you will become a replenished source of satisfaction. And so notice how she responds she says in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I'd not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still doesn't see the depth of this significance. She just sees it as being convenient, like indoor plumbing, right? But he continues, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, just like we saw with that first question, woman, give me a drink. So also with this one, there's more going on here. Jesus is asking a question to get an answer because he knows this woman intimately. And so what does she say? Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now here's, here's the question for you as Bible interpreters. Why does Jesus bring this up? Why is this significant? He took a detour in Samaria, but did he just take a detour in the conversation to something irrelevant? We know that he knows the information, so he's not asking for the husband so that he'll come. He's asking to bring this out into the light, the fact that she's had five consecutive failed marriages and now has given up on the institution altogether and is just living with a man, apparently. How is that related to the conversation they were having? It's a conversation about desire and a lack of satisfaction. This woman has been looking for something and she hasn't found it. Consecutive marriage after marriage has failed her. What she was looking for is left unfound. When Jesus is talking about a fountain of living water that will satisfy her, it's clear that the way that she's been trying to satisfy her life is with men. And it's failed her. It's let her down. It's as close as it comes to what Jeremiah says when he says, my people, speaking of Israel, have committed two evils. They've forsaken the fountain of living water and have made for themselves broken pots that can hold no water. This woman's broken pots, her form of worship and coping and finding significance was bound up in marriage and it was constantly failing her. That's why Jesus is having this conversation. That's what he's talking about. 
And what he says here is that what he offers brings full satisfaction and significance. Now, once again, you may be different than the woman here because the woman has had enough failed experiences to stop searching. To not think, you know, it's just not been the right man. I mean, five consecutive marriages, am I right that that breeds our president? It comes pretty darn close. I mean, that's, that's almost unheard of even in our day and age of easy divorce. And she's not found what she's looking for. And the danger is, for some of us, we have these internal desires and we really believe that we can find the fulfillment we're looking for. And that complicates all the things we're talking about because they're inherently bound up with desires and longings and God-given ones at that. And for many of us, we're going to discover that the methods we're using to quench our thirst is like guzzling salt water. It just makes things worse. And the satisfaction that Jesus is talking about here, the one that he offers here, it changes our desires in a significant way. In fact, in a couple of significant ways. First off, it changes our desires in terms of priority. In fact, we see it with the woman here. In a second, he reveals himself, and she, she basically, she says, well, clearly you're a prophet, so I have a religious question. And once again, I would argue there that there's more going on than just a religious question of curiosity. She needs to know how to begin again. She goes, oh, okay, I've just encountered someone who speaks for God. I, it's probably time for my life to get right. So how do I do that? Do I go to the temple in Jerusalem? Can I stay here? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Stop thinking about physical things for a second. It's not water at the well, it's living water. It's not physical worship in this mountain or that mountain. It's spiritual worship in spirit and in truth because God is spirit and in truth. Okay. And then she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, that's me. He owns up to the full title of what she's looking for and she gets it. And notice how it changes her priorities. Look here in chapter 4. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming with him. And as the story moves on, the entire city comes to Jesus. And they come to the woman and they say, originally, we came to listen to Jesus because you said so. But now we have seen for himself and know that he is the savior of the world. Okay? This woman is the evangelist that Jesus uses to reach this entire town that nobody in Israel wanted. Okay? And to be honest, she's an incredibly effective evangelist with a surprisingly questionable method. Right? I mean, not only does she have no good reputation in this town, in fact, that's why she's getting water in the middle of the day, which would be totally abnormal. It's super hot. You do that in the morning or in the evening, but she can't because that's when the other women draw. And she, remember, has had five husbands and is now living with a man. But nonetheless, on top of that, her testimony is a little bit shady, right? What does she say? I met this man. He told me everything. Maybe he's the Messiah, but, the, but it works. God uses her. But I want you to notice a very small detail. It says, as she went to go and tell, she left her water pot. Now, that's not just a, a literary aside. It's significant. 
Why was she at the well? To draw water. What was the whole thing that attracted her to Jesus? A better water solution. Now that's no longer so important. Okay. The significance of this is that her priorities have changed, and obviously, granted, a very practical way. Tomorrow she's still going to have to return to the well. But it's always that way when we experience the living water that Jesus is talking about. It recalibrates all of our desires because it prioritizes them and puts one at the top. Okay. The currency of heaven is so valuable that it makes the things of this world, even the good things of this world, pale in comparison, pesos in comparison. And this is what Paul says. He says, all the things I used to boast in, once again in Philippians, my status as a Jew, my perfect record in keeping the law, my devotion to Judaism, he says, I count it all as worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. It's not that those things don't have any significance. It's that the significance pales in comparison to what he's found in Jesus. But it doesn't just reprioritize our desires. It also gives us new ones. It really does change our desires. It significantly reorients the way we go about life, what we're seeking for and how we seek for it. We don't really have time to unpack that, but I'm assuming that if you're a Christian tonight, you've probably experienced it, that there are things in your life now that give you joy that you would have seen as questionable or at the very best, boring. For me, the idea of hanging out with Christians was low on the priority list. It was something I generally avoided, even though I identified as one as a child. But when I knew Jesus, I was hungry for fellowship. I was hungry to be around other people who also knew Jesus, to learn from them, to share with them, to pray with them. It was new. And the thing is, for this woman, her life will never be the same. And we're not told the rest of the story. Like I said, I don't have directions for you. I don't have a map for you. But the man that she met here changed her life in the midst of the mess she'd made of it. Despite her longings and the inability to find satisfaction in those longings. And we have to be honest tonight that this is significant because we, di we directly tie as a society, and I'm not saying wrongly, we directly tie as a society our identity and our desires. We generally, the way we think about who we are is an internal discovery as moderns. We go, who we are is in me, and I have to be true to that, okay? Now, that is a relatively new idea, and it has some truth to it, but it also has some pitfalls. And the problem is we look at this and we go, but if the desires define who I am and those desires go unmet, then I am not fulfilling my full potential as a human being. I'm not truly being myself. And we're recognizing something accurate, okay? That we experience in our lives incongruence, identity problems, that the question, who am I, is relatively difficult for us to answer. And these things complicate the issue because they're clearly a part of the matrix. They're clearly a part of who we are. So what do we do with them? Last night I went and heard Dr. Mark Yarhouse speak. Um, in the back, I have a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria that's authored by him that I recommended over the course of this series. Um, he is a significant Christian psychologist. In fact, 
when the APA, which is the organization of psychologists, uh, when the APA was working on a new uh, list of how to deal with people processing gender dysphoria, just, just a, a manual of how to go about it, he was on the council okay, for helping determine that. And he talks about this issue of, of impulse and desire and identity um, in a way that I think is really helpful. And this is what he says. He says, we need to have an understanding that there's different ways of resolving identity conflicts. He says, we can understand this uh, with reference to different experiences of congruence, okay? That's the idea of getting everything to fit, everything so it aligns. This is what he says, a distinction can be made between organismic congruence and telic congruence. Organismic congruence refers to taking cues from one's own impulses as a guide to shaping identity and behavior. It presumes that such impulses are good and helpful resources in identity formation and personal fulfillment, but organismic congruence is but one way of achieving congruence. Another way to achieve congruence is telic congruence. Telic congruence looks ahead to who one is becoming. It can consider design and purpose both here and now and in the future and can be reflected in a person's desire to lay aside or be disciplined in response to impulses in favor of another way of achieving a sense of self, purpose, and identity. And so what he suggests here is that instead of only thinking that the only way we come to congruence is through following our impulses, letting our inner light guide us and, and leading our life so that we live out the fullest expression of who we really are, there's also this recognition of where we're going and who we're becoming that brings restrictions to that, that brings disciplines to that, but those disciplines, because they have purpose, solve our identity issues. And the truth is, on many of these issues, the church has done a bad job of providing a script that's beneficial or compelling to people dealing with these things. We've said oversimplifications like just don't be gay or just get married or these types of things. Or generally, we've provided what Eve Tushnet calls a vocation of none or a vocation of no. Just don't do these things. At our very worst, the church has ignored the reality of these impulses and said, what you're doing is just willful disobedience, when that's a total misunderstanding and incongruent with what we saw with the man born blind, that there really are real things that go sideways in life. And so we have to recognize the script that Christianity provides, which is a script of becoming that God has a significant plan and he's doing something and he's doing it through the bad and the good, through the ups and the downs, that we are where we are, but that's not where Jesus will leave us. And once again, I want to be clear here that we're not talking about forsaking, for example, homosexuality for heterosexuality. We're talking about holiness. The destination that Jesus is taking you to may move through the normal path of marriage, it may not move through the normal path of marriage. It may move through the satisfaction of your desires and it may be manifest in the fact that you say this is true and I have these longings and they're unmet but they will be fully and completely met and Jesus is so significant in what he's done on the cross um, that he's sufficient, that he's enough. 
that the single life, in fact, the single life is probably the greatest expression we have in Christianity that salvation in Jesus Christ is enough. That it's a full enough and deep enough and true enough blessing to have satisfaction completely and utterly. But I still don't think we've covered it because for some of us, when we hear these things, where it grieves us is not in the places where we're incongruent internally. It's not because of unmet desires uh, or, or longings that we have that we wonder what to do with. It's because we have a past. It's because we have a history. It's not because of anyone else's anything, but we have willingly gone our own way, chosen our own path. And whether we're a Christian or not, we look at this mess and we go, but is there any hope for me? And so I think we need to look at another person tonight. This one's in John chapter 8. I want to again, again just confirm that I don't see these as mutually exclusive that I think life is so complex that most of us experience an intermingling of these things. And even in issues of sexuality and gender, we experience an intermingling of these things, that it's not merely one category or the other. But this is a significant one that needs to be addressed. And so look at verse 2 of chapter 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in, excuse me, in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now notice once again, just like the disciples, this isn't really about the issue. This woman is just a prop in a plot to, to trap Jesus. Because if he says, no, 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 don't stone her, then he denies the law of Moses and he's clearly a heretic. But if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone her, then he goes against the law of the land in Rome because Israel did not have capital punishment anymore. Uh, and so then they can report him to the authorities. They're just trying to trap him and this woman is just a prop in the ploy. And so they ask him this question and notice what Jesus does, does in verse six. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It's odd. In fact, it's so odd, even though we know where the story goes, if you're familiar with it, we still go, wait, what exactly is Jesus doing? A lot of times he answers a question with a question, or he has a profound conversation that moves in another way. There's aspects of that here. We'll get there. But the first thing he does is he just squats down and starts to draw in the dirt. What is going on? Now, this is just an observation that I've made. I don't know of its value, but it may be significant for this. It mentions specifically here that he drew with his finger. And the reason why I think that is significant is because the, quote, finger of God shows up a handful of times in the Bible. And all the circumstances are similar. The first time is in the crafting of the Ten Commandments. We're told in the book of Exodus that they were written with the very finger of God. That's the way that it's put. The second time we find it is in the book of Daniel when the uh, king, Belshazzar, the king of Persia, uh, is having this wild, drunken party and this hand appears out of nowhere and writes this cryptic message on the wall that ends up being a prophecy of the downfall of the kingdom. It's written with the finger of God. Okay. The third time is actually in Jesus' own ministry. 
The Pharisees are once again criticizing him, and he says, however, if I cast out demons with the very finger of God, then I tell you the kingdom of God has come. In all of those contexts, the finger of God always speaks of judgment, right? The giving of the law, the judgment of the Persians, the judgment of of demonic forces, and so it's significant here that he squats down to write in the dirt, and then notice what happens next. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And so he stands up and he says, all right, the first of you that's without sin, you go ahead and start this thing. You throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the dirt and slowly all the men leave. But it even tells us here in the Gospel of John, they, mo- they leave in order of age. The elderly leave first. What is going on here? I would suggest to you that it seems like in some way each of these men is experiencing a deep conviction. Okay? And that it's somehow related to whatever Jesus is writing. And I don't know if he's significantly just airing their dirty and hidden laundry right out there in writing. You know, like like Santa's list of bad. It's just you know, Joseph, and then a list of things that he's done, or if it's something more than that. We're not actually told. But either way, they go away. And the first thing we need to recognize here is, uh, well, and let's, let's talk about this woman, for, exa- exam- uh, for example. It says that she's caught in the very act, okay? In the midst of an adulterous affair, the religious leaders just raid the building and drag her out, probably naked, into the street for this engagement. It's completely unjust. It's totally horrific. Where is the man she was sleeping with? He's apparently irrelevant, right? But nonetheless, she's caught in the act and her shame and her sin and her guilt are real. And here she is fully exposed to all of these men and in front of Jesus. And it might once again be different for you tonight. The issue might not be that you're afraid of the sin that's out in the open. It's the sin that you haven't told any about, anyone about. You go, yeah, this is a totally different thing. For me, right now, I have the benefit of no one knowing. And it's hidden in the darkness, and that might be different. But I want you to notice the first thing. When Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone, we hear the first thing that we all need to hear tonight, which is wherever you look at your own sin issues, Wherever you see your own background with this, no matter how, pile, how high you would pile the filth that keeps you from Jesus, first and foremost, recognize tonight you're not alone. We always, always, because we're more well acquainted with it, because we know it, not just the roster of our sins, but the depth of it, how deep it really goes, the motivations, all the things that we could have done if we had the opportunity, we've just never had the opportunity the reality of what's going on in our hearts. It's often isolating. And we think, yeah, Jesus came to save sinners, but not sinners like me. Or we think, yes, but I've been a Christian for so long, and now all of these things, clearly I've exhausted the resources that God has for me in grace. When Jesus says this, he reminds us that there is no one who can stand in this room and cast judgment because they're not in need of a savior as well. And that's important. When we speak of people being sinners, we speak with the we. 
we include ourselves with anyone we speak to. And we must recognize that, but also those of you who are struggling with guilt and shame on these things, recognize that you're not alone. And so what happens? All these men go away in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go sin no more. Now, notice first off, when Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you, that's significant because there was one who was without sin in that crowd. When he says, Neither do I, he's distancing himself from everyone else. But even Jesus doesn't condemn But it's very important here that we hear what Jesus actually says and not half of what he says. And so notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I condemn you as well, go and sin no more. Right? He doesn't say, yes, I judge you as being a mess, go get it right and then we can talk. And so often in our own sins, even if we know the gospel, even if we've known Jesus for a long time, that's what we think. I have to get this handled and then I can go back to Jesus. But he also doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, continue on in your sin. Right? What we're talking about here is not a cheap grace, free pass salvation where Jesus just says, I don't really care about these things. They're not that big of a deal. I love you enough to keep you. No, he says something specific. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the order is important. The order is important. When he says, neither do I condemn you, he repeats what he said about his own ministry when he said the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. He's on a mission of salvation. He knows that we're lost in the woods and he's come to guide us home. But the call is always there, go and sin no more. And that's not some sort of secondary characteristic or requirement. It's not some sort of promise keeper's vow that you make up front. And if you don't keep it, then you annul Jesus' promise to save you. It is a description of repentance. And repentance is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis says this very clearly. I believe this is from the problem of pain. But he says this, remember this, repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something that God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. The thing is, if sin means going astray, then we can't do that and follow Jesus. We have to turn away. That's what repent means. We have to turn away from the way we were going to follow Jesus. We can't do both at the same time. And there's something we have to recognize here. As much as Lewis's description that repentance is like death might scare us, that's not the one on his list that really gets on our nerves. It's that repentance is submission. It's that it's a surrendering of the will no longer determining which direction we go. And once again, when it comes to travel, if you're going to get through the jungle and your guide is trailblazing in front of you, getting out of the jungle looks like following the trail. It looks like following Jesus. And that's Jesus' primary metaphor for what a relationship looks like him. 
How many times does he say, come, follow me? But even if you're lost again, even if you're further off the map that you've ever been, even if you feel that this is too big or too far or too deep, neither does Jesus condemn you. He's not surprised that the sick need a doctor. That's why he came. But there's one last category I want to deal with very quickly. And this is especially the case if you're not a Christian tonight. If you've graciously put up with us talking through these things for the last few weeks and you don't identify as a Christian, I would imagine the primary way you've heard this entire series is in terms of cost. And you're weighing it and going, I'm not sure it's worth it to be a Christian. If this is what it looks like, I'm not sure I'm interested. And so I want to return somewhat appropriately to Matthew 19. This is where we started our very first week. And I don't know why this is the case. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, we find four little, we call them pericopes, but little separate stories together in the same order. Okay? The four stories are Jesus' teaching on divorce, let the little children come to me, the rich young ruler, which we're about to look at, and those who have forsaken their families will get a hundredfold in the kingdom. They're always in that order. Now, do you see if we remove the rich young ruler, the other three all go together? They're all family matters. Divorce, children, and then those who lose families and get community in the church. And we just have the rich young ruler in the middle. But I want you to look at the conversation he has with Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter your life, keep the commandments. And he said to them, Which ones? And Jesus said to him, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, All these things I've kept, what do I still lack? So notice here a couple of things. First, this man comes to Jesus. Unlike the woman at the well, unlike the man born blind, we don't see the same intentionality, but we, except from the other direction. This man seeks Jesus out. He says, Jesus, I have a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments and finishes it with his very favorite summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, all these things I've kept, what do I still lack? Now, what Jesus is about to say is easily misunderstood and misconstrued, so I want to be clear here. I want you to notice two things about this man. First, he wants salvation. He's after it. Second, he knows he doesn't have it. And so he says, yeah, I've done all these things, but what's missing? He knows there's something wrong, but he's ticked all the boxes. That's important because what Jesus asks him to do is tremendously personal. It's a blind spot. It's something the man can't see in his own life. It's not an extra condition for him. It's not a general condition for all people. It's the specific thing that this man can't see, the real reason why he doesn't know God the way he should, the real reason why he can't just follow Jesus. Notice what he says to him. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. 
And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See what happens here? He says, here's the one thing. Here's the one thing that stands in your way. Like I said, we know it's not a general command. The Bible doesn't call all Christians to sell all they have and give to the poor to come and follow Christ. But for this man, it's essential. Why? Because as Jesus says earlier in the book of Matthew, you can't serve God and money. And this man finds his sense of worth and security and has cultivated his own heaven, if you want to think of it that way, in his wealth. And he can't have it both ways. He can't worship money and worship God. He can't follow his finances and follow Jesus. This is always how I think of this. If you remember the film The Sixth Sense, which I hope I'm not going to spoil for you. It should be long enough overdue that I shouldn't feel bad about it anymore. Um, The psychiatrist played by, uh, oh boy, it's late. It's an hour later than it should be. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So anyways, he, the whole film, he keeps going to this closet door and reaching and turning the handle and the door's always locked. And you don't really know why. And in the last scene, when he finally discovers that he's not actually alive, He's freaking out and he goes to the house and he tries to open the door and the camera pans back and there's a desk in front of the door. And he just couldn't see it. That's what this is. It's not the door. It's the desk in front of the door. It's the one thing that this guy can't see that stands in the way of him really walking through the door. And I think for many, many people in our time and in our culture where we've made such a God of sexuality, this is what it feels like to follow Jesus. Are you willing to forsake all of these things, to follow him. If celibacy is what's in the cards, will you follow him? If holiness sexually is what's in the cards, will you follow him? If dissatisfaction in the things that our world says is essential for satisfaction is in the cards, will you follow him? And I don't want to downplay the cost because Jesus never did. This man came and said, what will it take for me to be your disciple? And we could say that Jesus scared him away. Jesus drew the line in the sand. And he always consistently warned people about the cost and counting the cost of following him. He's the one who said that if anyone seeks to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But there's another truth here. And that truth is that although it is very costly to follow Jesus, it is totally worth it. And that's not something you can always see up front. And this story ends with this man going, going away sad because he's very wealthy, but we don't know that's where it ends. Maybe that's his first reaction. Many of us know what it's like to balk at the gate of following Jesus, only to finally get desperate enough to pay whatever it costs to follow him. And for those of us who have been Christians long enough, there are other areas in our life where we can look And like Paul, we can say, worth it. We can say, yes, it's been costly, but the riches in comparison have been incomprehensible, unsurpassable. And the honest truth is, the best is yet to come. That's why Paul says, for I've come to realize that the sufferings of this world pale in comparison to the immeasurable riches of the glory of Christ that is to come. And so I don't know where you find yourself tonight. I don't know which one of those characters resonates with you the most. But even if there's one that stands out or not one that stands out, 
this is who Jesus is. And this is God's great plan of redemption. It's not instructions. It's not a call for you to fix yourself. It's not just recognizing that you're in the wrong place and ending the conversation there. It's sending Jesus to deal with the difficulties, to pay for the sin, to lead you home. And so the question for all of us every day of our lives is today, are we going to follow Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I feel like we need to just take a moment since we're not going to end in worship and we're going to move to the Q&A, just take a moment to silently just do some housekeeping. Do a little bit of defining the relationship between us and you. And so let's just take a few minutes quietly and if there's questions that you have for God, if there's things that you need to confess, if there's areas where you're struggling to believe or struggling to repent, Bring those before the Lord. Father, thank you that you are the God who's, who says of our worst defects, of our greatest difficulties, that you are with us in the midst of those things and that they're not outside your plan and that you will use them for your good purpose. Thank you that you're the God who says the distance is not too great for you to bridge with your blood, that forgiveness is not lost and is fully available. And thank you for the God who, that you're the type of God, that you are the God who designed us for yourself in such a way that we can find full and complete satisfaction in you. And I pray that you'd protect us from being like the Israelites and making for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. I pray that we'd hear the words of the prophet Isaiah who says, come eat bread without money and wine without cost. Why do you eat that which is not bread? Why do you drink that which is not wine? Come to me and eat freely. And I know, Lord, that for all of us, I may not know exactly where we're at in our journey, where we are on a map, but I know that we're in a journey. And I know that you will be faithful to carry us home. Pray that we would our prayer life concerning a thorn in the flesh that we may have. Should we transition from asking for deliverance to asking for God's grace through it? Should we never stop asking for deliverance and just do both? Is asking for deliverance hindering my ability to experience grace in that situation? Um, I think that's a really helpful question. Um, what we see in Paul's life, I think, is significant. That he stops praying because God has spoken to him. Okay, And so it's not... Uh, it's not as if his prayer has gone unanswered, and so he goes, well, then plan B. His prayer has been answered, and the answer is very clear, and he accepts the answer. And so I think, um, especially as we're dealing with things in our lives, read the Psalms. 
there's nothing we're dealing with that isn't appropriate to bring into the presence of God uh, and, and even to, to regularly do so. And it's Jesus himself who gives us the parable of the persistent widow, this woman who badgers a judge and says, give me justice, give me justice. And although there's nothing in it for the judge and he's not really a great guy, he goes, fine, only because you're bothering me so much and I want to get some sleep. And he says, how much more will God the Father hear his children when they ask? And so there's an appropriateness and persistence in prayer. Um, but I'm the type of person, and this goes for God's will as well, I'm not going to stop knocking until the door is clearly closed. Okay? And even when I go through a door with the Lord, if I don't feel like I have that type of an answer, a Paul, my grace is sufficient for you answer, I'm going to walk through tentatively and I'm going to say, okay, Lord, this is what I think you're doing in my life. If not, lead me in a different direction. I think for many of us, we need to remember um, that there's a purpose in prayer beyond letting God know what's up, right? The, the, the reality of prayer is inherently a reality of communion. That it is how we relate to God. And that's something that God wants us to cultivate. And so you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, for example, and you've got a 25-year timeline for a granted and spoken promise. You've got Elijah who's told, I want you to, uh, I want you to go up on the mountain and pray because I'm going to bring a storm. And he prays and he sends his servant. He says, do you see anything? And he says, no. And so he prays some more. Um, there is something significant in continuing to pray when we know what God is doing. And that significance is clearly not because God has forgotten. It's, it's because he's developing in us, a relationship with him, a dependence on him. In Abraham's life, those 25 years develop his faith muscles. And so by the time the promise comes, he's so convinced of who God is, he's ready for the great hurdle that comes in the call to sacrifice his son, right? If, if he had just had a natural and normal baby, he would not have been in the same place in his relationship with the Lord. And so my, my advice would be um, keep praying until you feel like God has given you an answer. I would say the same thing if you're single and you desire a husband or a wife. Keep praying. In, unless God really, you really feel like God speaks to you and says, no, I've got singleness for you, then just recognize the fact that God tells long stories. Ooh, that one doesn't fit, but I'll scroll down in just a second. There we go. And then it doesn't fit on my screen, that's funny. I realize you're avoiding giving a map, but there's things here that feel internally inconsistent, starting with the definition that sin is something that causes pain and breaks relationship. What am I supposed to do if my wife's experience of her gender is no longer aligned with the gender she was assigned at birth and transitions? I'm now married to a man. Do we divorce? What if our relationship is bearing good fruit? Divorcing would cause more pain. No? What if a gay couple comes to Christ together? Are they now supposed to get a divorce? Again, this seems to be adding to the brokenness of the world, not reducing it. I fundamentally don't understand how these could be the destinations God has in mind for these relationships. Um, I think these questions are, um, are difficult ones to navigate, but I do think there's a couple of principles to keep in mind. 
Um, and so, so first off, we have to deal with, um, with a definition of sin, recognizing that sin inherently causes pain uh, and breaks relationship is not a definition of sin. It is a byproduct of sin, but following Jesus also causes pain and sometimes breaks relationship. And so it, it doesn't serve us. When we have to sell, settle for a definition of sin, we're ultimately going to come back to having to deal not just on the horizontal level, but on the vertical, on with what God has designed and said and responding to those things. Um, and, and so I think that's important. The, the second thing is uh, when we say here that uh, a wife is no longer experiencing her gender alignment, she was assigned at birth and transitions, and now you're married to a man, um, there's, there's a, an inherent um, ideological idea there that says that transitioning changes gender, which I think is a questionable thing. Um, because for starters, when we're talking about biological sex, we're never merely talking about genitalia, okay? And every chromosome of your wife's body, and unless there's an intersex condition goes, uh, goes along, bears the stamp, ir unerasable, of, of the biological sex. And so, so although the genitalia can change, um, and, and even that, what you have is an amalgamation not, not a change in genitals. You have an amalgamation of genitals. You have plastic surgery. That's effectively what we're talking about. Um, now, recognizing the fact uh, that that puts the marriage at risk, I think is absolutely true. Um, and I'll, I'll just tell you, just first from, from personal experience, I have a friend who's, uh, whose sister uh, was married to a man who transitioned, and they tried to keep the relationship together, and it didn't work. Uh, and, and that doesn't really surprise me at all. Um, uh, but one of the things that is true about sin, once again, not a definition, but, but an, a reality of sin, um, is, is that it complicates things. Uh, and so the more we move down a path, the more other aspects are involved, the more complex things get, okay? And so we're fully capable of weaving Gordian knot situations, and not just hypotheticals, but really in life. And I think for that, it's worth, uh, it's worth remembering um, the proper way to think of repentance, okay? Uh, repentance is not getting to the end of whatever's wrong in your situation. Repentance begins with moving in that direction, okay? So repentance begins with a single step, just like a journey. That's the way it works. And so there's an attitudinal change, like I said, that submission change that says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't pre-conclude where things are going or how they get there necessarily, and especially not how quickly they get there or the route it takes to get there. Okay? There's, there's complexities there, but I think those complexities are a lot less if the repentance is real. Now, the other complexity in that is that in any relationship, and that includes a marriage relationship, we have two people and not just one. And so it's not just your decisions, but your spouse's decisions. And this is always how divorce works. There's this great passage in a G.K. Chesterton book where he's talking about the faulty understanding of a mutually agreed upon divorce. And he just says, when, you know, recognizing that two hearths that are burning can go out is a thing. But thinking that they went out at the exact same moment, not a thing. 
He says, always somebody divorces and the other permits or puts up with the divorce. And I think there's more significance in that that we realize. Um, now let's look at the second one. What if a gay couple comes to Christ together? Are they now supposed to be divorced? Again, this seems to be adding to the brokenness of this world, not reducing it. Once again, there's a, uh, a ideological uh, idea here that we have to deal with, which is, um, is a gay couple who is married, should we view that as a marriage? And this is a really difficult question because right now I just want to talk about it conceptually as Christians, but it clearly spills into political places where I don't want to be. Okay, this is not about how Christians should feel politically about gay people getting married. It's about what marriage is. And as we saw in our study, marriage is significantly a pairing of opposites, physiologically, um, and then although it is dipolar, also uh, in the broad scope of gender. And, and that's not incidental. It's part of it. So the question is here is, does it lead to divorce? Um, I, think, I think it probably does. Um, I think there may be other uh, odd options there, but it seems to me that that's one of the profound places that we're in a, in a society that repentance could look like divorce. Now, the natural thing to go is, but what about children? And I get it and I totally feel it, and I've been up late at night thinking about the same thing. I, these are obviously, none of these are circumstances I've had to personally navigate or pastorally navigate, and that's important to say up front. Um, but once again, we have to own up to what Jesus says, where he recognizes that following Jesus sometimes means broken families, that he came to bring a sword, and so that's going to be division. And it definitely doesn't mean a packing your bags and disappearing in the night and abandoning your children. There are clear things that this does not look like. And whatever it does look like is going to, um, is going to be different because I actually think that's the heartbeat of a Christian ethic. It looks different, okay? Because it's not just the moralism of men uh, or, or the sentimentality of people, but a true commitment to go, how does the gospel operate in this way? Um, but I think we have to be careful of, um, of or precluding these options and saying, well, sure, it may be possible that a same-sex relationship is bad, but so is divorce, therefore divorce can't be an option and people are, are stuck where they are. Um, I, also, I also question... If, um, if somebody becomes a Christian, okay, now, so I'm not necessarily talking about, um, about Christians who are in a committed gay relationship um, and, and are living that out, believing that it's a faithful way to do things, but if, if a gay couple was coming to this church and was married and became Christians, I think, once again, we need to not preclude that, the, that they're going to assume something doesn't have to change. And that I speak from personal experience. Because as I've talked with people who have, um, who have met Jesus, as some of us may remember, everything is on the table. Everything is on the table. And I've consistently found that willingness. And I think if anything, that gives me more sensitivity to not wreak havoc with uh, quick answers and lack of wisdom. But I think it's another thing that we need to keep in mind here. Um, so...
How do you support a loved one with whom you grew up together in the church who's now living with a same-sex partner? We have limited interactions, maybe once to twice a year, but I don't, uh, I do want to encourage her to lead her to Christ in whatever way possible in the ways and times we interact. I would encourage you to meditate on the way we see Jesus interacting in his life. I think there's a lot to learn there, primarily because it cleans up a lot of misconceptions and missteps. Um, And uh, these things are heated because a lot of times they become the litmus test of if we're being faithful uh, and can even be that for other people in our lives that complicates these things. But what we see is that Jesus uh, is hanging out with people, believers and not, self-righteous, arrogant Pharisees and tax collectors all across the board, and it's a scandal, always. And so those of us who might be okay with the fact that he has dinner with tax collectors and sinners, he still accepts the invitation to Simon's house, right? He walks into Levi, the tax collector's house, who by his own admission has been extorting his own neighbors for profit. Um, And so, so here's the things it can't be. It can't be no interaction. It just can't be. One of the things that Mark Yarhouse said last night that I thought was really helpful and I've been thinking through all day is he says, when we talk about all these things, we should really see a pyramid with three pieces. And so at the top, we should recognize that these things uh, we're interacting with at the political advocate letter level. In other words, there's ideological places where our conversation is going to take us. Next is at the, at the, um, at the practical neighbor level which means you have people in your life and you need to learn how to live with them and live with them lovingly. And then there's the personal level where you actually have personal relationship and all three of those things, there's value in doing. But we tend to lump it all together. And so too often, um, our personal relationships, we treat like an ideological relationship and that's that's where we feel like the battle is, that's where we need to talk. Um, Or or we, we focus in on the personal and don't recognize the significance that ideology plays, not just in shaping our country, um, but, but just in general, that the Bible proclaims a message and therefore has something to say. Um, but what that means here is that when we're working on the personal level, the motivation here in this question is right, to, to lead them to Christ, um, but for most people, most people, it goes one of two ways, and they're very different. One is that the clear and upfront issue is the one that becomes the point where they meet with Christ, okay? And so, like the, the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, her entry point of understanding who Jesus is is right there. Other times, it's in things that is a complete side door, like the man who comes and suddenly wealth is on the table when he didn't even bring that up, right? Once again, this is something Jesus knows that this guy didn't fully disclose, He doesn't come up and say, hi, I'm the rich young ruler, right? Jesus just knows that this is the issue. He has no idea that's what it's about. And uh, and I I have discovered with many people that the things that bring them to Jesus are relatively diverse. And so what that looks like in our life then shouldn't be a narrow-minded that the only way this goes down is by addressing this obvious or particular or frustrating issue. Um, I'll, I'll... I'll give you one last example before I move on to another question. Uh, a while ago, um, I had a, um, a married couple, a lesbian married couple, visit our church and write me an email. And so I had them over for dinner to, 
talk to them, um, and their, their email was very, very kind, and they just wanted to know what our position was on a church. And so I asked them over, and I heard their story, and it was a rough story. They had met and fallen for one another and gotten engaged all in the setting of a particular church. They got their marriage counseling from their home group leader in this particular church, and when it made it up the chain to the leadership, the leadership said, none of you can attend that wedding, and their entire community was just ripped out from under them. And so they were still kind of reeling from that, which is why they just asked up front um, as they had moved to Seattle. Um, but it was, it, was a, a, it was a really good dinner, and it was very encouraging, but it was also an odd dinner because both of us were clearly there to be good advocates of the other side. And actually, I really appreciated that, and so did they. Um, and that was something they constantly reiterated, was they appreciated our frankness as a church. Um, but it meant that the end of the dinner was really awkward. And, uh, and I was reflecting on it, and I said it, and I came to this conclusion later. I was like, you know, what I wish I had done, one of the women shared that it wasn't just the homosexuality thing in the Bible that she struggled with. She thought the Bible said a lot of regressive things that were troubling. And although her, her wife had grown up doing K. Arthur studies and was really all about the Bible, she wasn't really that way. And I realized afterwards that although it probably wasn't the right place for them to be in our church, I wish I had just gone, hey, you know what, I would love to talk further about those issues and talk about how we come to understand the Bible and even deal with some of these other problems. Um, and it just didn't occur to me until weeks later and until we had fallen out of contact. Um, but that's, that's what it's looked like in my life. How would you begin talking to a transgender person about God's will to heal their condition if they, unlike the blind man, perceive their dysphoria as something to be celebrated? Um, I think, and I'm pulling on a single word, the word begin here, um, I think the, the first thing is um, two things. One, that... Uh, once again, this is probably not the primary front door issue to talk about somebody. And, uh, and the second thing I would say is recognize that there's an entire history behind the conversation or the introduction you've had to this person that you don't know. One of the things that Mark Yarhouse said last night is that one of his patients said, Mark, if you've ever met a transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And he said that he's found that to be true. And wherever we are in somebody's life, we're coming in, you know, late in the story. And so finding out how people came to these conclusions, not only is it just good, loving compassion to listen to somebody and want to know more about them, um, but it's also incredibly helpful and informative because not all stories are the same. Um, and and so, so that's, that's where I would encourage you to begin it's totally appropriate to ask questions about these things. And even here, when I've had conversations with people who I was just getting to know who were transgender, um, once again, they didn't seem to be bothered by honest questions and even some frank concerns I had because it was clear that I wasn't there just to win an argument. That wasn't what it was really about. I was trying to get to know them. Um, and the last time I had one of these conversations, it was really interesting because I discovered that they're... Uh, that they had no Christian identification and that their own belief system was this amalgam that all religions are equally true 
and the gods of these religions call their own people. And so I was able to engage on that. And, and what, I, what I told him was, look, as you're coming to our church, how I feel about your sense of gender means nothing if Jesus isn't alive. And I said, so if you're willing, I would love for you to come and just explore that, explore who Jesus is, uh, you know, up, up front. And I think, I think there's so many other things we can talk about that are important and worthwhile, that are missional in nature, are evangelistic and are pursuing and loving. Um, and at the same time, we shouldn't shy away from, from doing these things. Like, let me point to an obvious example. If this is your child, then it's not, um, it's not merely theoretical or conceptual. It, it, it's going to cultivate practical aspects of your life. You're going to have to figure out what it looks like to be a family while they're navigating this issue. And let me be very clear to you that it will look like you being a family. I think that's essential to get straight uh, in these things. Um, but, but there's going to be practicalities that have to be worked out, and you can't just avoid the issue, pretend it's not happening, shut things down. Uh, you know, you're going to have to work through them. Um, but in terms of answering the big question of how you would go about dealing with this, uh, this issue here, um, I think I think I want to finish just pointing out a really wise uh, observation here. And they mention here that unlike the blind man, they perceive their dysphoria as being something celebrated. Um, like the blind man, if they're not a Christian, there's a spiritual blindness going on, uh, and that's significant. And spiritual blindness doesn't go away by waving truth or opinion in front of people's faces. Um, there's an aspect of, of prayer in the leading of the Holy Spirit and revelation that goes into these things that I think is um, severely underrated when the culture wars are raging so hot and we're just trying to, you know, lob truth grenades and get out of there unscathed. Um, and so, so I think, I think there are places, and especially if you've got somebody who is not just engaging with this because it's personal, but is actually at the ideolo ideological advocate level, that they've got their ducks in a row, that they know how to fight these fights, that they're willing to engage, um, then engaging at that level is a, is a good thing, but do it as a Christian. You know, um, Paul says that any time we prepare to give an explanation for the things we believe, we should do it with gentleness and respect. And, uh, and so I think that's another thing that has to be a part here. To what extent does a literal Satan influence the LGBTQ movement, not in a political sense, but in deceptively supporting the notion that their desires are not sinful, but inherent or a lifestyle choice in mass? I would say to the same extent that he influences the rest of us in our delusions. Um, one of the challenges about determining what's going on in our lives is that the Bible points to a handful of variables. Okay, so the, the major three that it talks about is the world, the flesh, and the devil which means that part of what's going on in your life has to do with internal desires. Read the book of James, right? You desire 
you don't get, and so you murder and kill. There's an internal conflict that leads to the external conflicts in your life. That's your flesh. There's also the world, which is this greater than the sum of its part reality of humanity uh, in society, which has kind of a, um, a momentum to it. And, and so the Bible talks about the world as this societal reality that shapes how we think without us noticing it. And then it also talks about the devil and the spiritual aspect. All of those variables are generally involved in all of your life. And so you can't just like pin the tail on the donkey, try and go, okay, is this the flesh? Is this the devil? Is this the world? They work in tandem. They're interrelated and they're interwoven. And honestly, they're all invisible, right? You can't, you can't go to a doctor and get tested and it goes, well, it's the flesh, right? That's not how it works. They're all invisible. And so, so trying to proportion them out isn't necessarily the most helpful thing to do. Um, now, there may be times that what you're going through, for example, is spiritual warfare and needs to be fought in that direction, and so you have to own up to the realities of those things. Um, or you may be blaming the devil, right? We're really good at that. The devil made me do it when it's actuality exactly what you want to do and choose to do all the time. Um, so there's, those things are possible, but, um, but I don't know how helpful it is to try and ratio it out uh, or to explain it by, by a single influence. Um, and, and I have concerns how easy it is for us to see a demonic influence here and not in Wall Street. I have concerns that we tend to take specific sins that we dislike for particular reasons, not necessarily biblical ones, but maybe because of their foreignness or actual interactions we've had in our life and make those the clear evidence of the devil's work in the life and ignore the ones that actually influence our lives. Um, you know, on, on one occasion, um, a man comes and he says, Jesus, is it only going to be a few people who are saved? And it's one of these questions. Where's the bad guy? Who's missing it? How small? How few are the faithful like me is effectively what this person is asking. And Jesus says, just be concerned for yourself. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Uh, and I think it's the same thing here. I'm not sure there's as much value in determining Satan's influence over the world in some particular aspect as there is of recognizing it in our own life. Um, and I also think that in general, um, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. In general, the pronoun of ministry is we. And so as, as long as we're talking to them or about them, whatever the category is, uh, not only will our ministry not be effective, but we're missing out on the way that this stuff works, which is these things exist in these people because they're human like us. And so we're prone to the same things and they manifest in different ways, but they're built on the same foundation. And so all of that to say that when we deal with our own things, it gives us both the wisdom and the sensitivity to help other people deal with their things. Is that not what Jesus says when he says that we need to deal with the log in our own eye instead of the speck in other people's? Okay. We'll put in a last call for questions here if you have one last pressing question that you'd like to get in.
wondering why I'm so tired, and then I remember that we were rejoicing this morning about that lost hour. And now it's 10.30 at night. Okay, this is as good a place as any to close. Uh, for all of those who attended tonight and have attended over the course of the service uh, and supplied your questions, thank you. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to teach through this series um, and, and to be given the opportunity to help you think through this series. Um, and the sermon that we had tonight was in direct response to week after week of questions and recognizing what was missing in what we talked about. Um, so I appreciate you all coming. I hope you have uh, a great week, and uh, the Lord bless you.